0: Well, Dr. Kroll, Woodrow Kroll, is here with his wife, Linda. I'm going to ask Linda if she would stand, please. We'll welcome her and Dr. Kroll to Colonial Baptist Church. Thank you, Dr. Thank you so very, very much. It is really a joy and an honor for me to be here your 25th year as the body of Christ in this place. Thank you for the invitation. I can only say to you if you could only make one service today, morning or evening, I'm sorry. (laughs) You picked the wrong one. Because my message tonight is much better than the one this morning. (laughs) Tonight, no promises, but I'm planning to reveal the identity of the Antichrist tonight. I will predict who will win the next presidential election, and I'll give you the true date of the rapture of the church. <laughs> All that tonight right here. Or maybe not. Uh, actually, tonight, I want to look into Mark chapter 5. I do invite you to come back. I want to look into Mark chapter 5 at one of my favorite stories. It's the story of Jesus casting the demons out of the man into the swine. And they run down into the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's a tremendous story, but there are great, great lessons for those of us in the 21st century from that story. That'll be tonight. I invite you to come back. Now, for those of you who do hear me on radio, and right now you're uh, closing your eyes, and you're saying, yeah, that's the right voice, but it sure doesn't go with that face. <laughs> I'm sorry. See, that's the great thing about radio. You can be ugly as sin and nobody knows. <laughs> I had a woman coming to me after a service some years ago and she shook my hand and she said, Oh, it's so good to put a voice and a face together. And she said, You have a great voice. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment. Now let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to the last letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote. That's 2 Timothy. What we see in 2 Timothy is clear indication. Paul knows he is coming near the end of his life. Things are winding down. He is in prison when he writes this letter to Timothy. And he knows he's going to die. And the reason I know he knows he's going to die is because the emperor of Rome at this point is Nero. Now, if you remember your Roman history, (laughs) the history of the empire, Julius Caesar kind of brought the empire together, but the first emperor of Rome really was Caesar Augustus. He's the man mentioned in Luke chapter 2 who sent out the decree that all the world should be taxed. Well, Caesar Augustus was followed by Tiberius, the emperor, and he was followed by a man named Caligula. Now, Caligula was insane. He was just a horrible, horrible creature. Caligula had a sister, however, whose name was Agrippina. Now, I want you to put that Agrippina on the sticky side of your mind because Agrippina's son is Nero, who would one day become emperor. So that's why he is important to Paul, and she is important to us as well. There was a rumor, and I think pretty well substantiated rumor, that Caligula's sister, Agrippina, and Caligula had an incestuous relationship with each other. Well, when Caligula died, the new emperor was Claudius, and Claudius was the uncle of Caligula. Now, just to show you how morally messed up the Roman Empire became, Agrippina decided she wanted to marry Claudius so she could be uh, influential in Rome. But it is her uncle as well. So she not only has an incestuous relationship with her brother, who was the emperor, now she wants to dump her husband So she can marry Claudius and and therefore have more uh, influence in the empire. So she decides she will hire a professional poisoner to kill her own husband. So as a young boy, Nero sits at the dinner table. Agrippina serves her husband poisoned mushrooms. And while young Nero sat at the table, he watched his father die at the hands of his own mother. She then married Claudius. In order to cement the relationship of these two families, Claudius already had a daughter by the name of Octavia. They decided that Nero and Octavia would get married at a very, very young age, and they did. But uh, unfortunately, Octavia was a very quiet girl. Uh, Nero loathed her because of her quietness. So he had her banished to an island and finally had her killed. So now he has killed one wife. He has watched his father die. And in order to make sure he had a direct line to become emperor in Rome, Claudius also had a son by the name of Britannicus, like the encyclopedia. And and Nero decided, I've got to get rid of Britannicus or I am never going to be emperor of Rome. Now fortunately for him, he knew a professional poisoner. So he hired exactly the same man who killed his father, to kill his half-brother. So now he's watched his father die. He's killed his half-brother. He's killed his first wife. After Octavia is dead, he marries another woman. Her name is Papia. Octavia is very quiet. Papia was not, probably should have been, because she chewed Nero out for coming home late one night to dinner. So he had her killed. So now he's killed two wives... One half-brother, stepbrother, and he's watched his father die. At this point, he decides to take a third wife. And you're wondering who would marry him. Well, her name is Statilia, and you'll be happy to know he did not kill Statilia. He killed Statilia's husband so he could marry Statilia. So now he's killed one husband, he's killed two wives, he's killed one stepbrother, and he's watched his father die. And at this point there's only one person left who stands between Nero and abject happiness, and that's his mother, Agrippina. So he decides, early on in his career, he decides, "I've got to get rid of my mother." Now, he was kind of an ingenious young fellow, so he had invented a collapsible boat. And he and Mummy Dearest uh, went out for a sail one day at Anzio, which was a seaport city in northern Italy. And he sent uh, Agrippina out on the water. He stayed on the shore, and sure enough, right on cue, down the boat went, and so did Agrippina. So Nero went back to Rome to celebrate the fact he'd gotten rid of his mother. Of course, what he didn't anticipate was how strong of a swimmer Agrippina was. (laughs) Agrippina swam back to shore, told a servant, Go tell my son Nero I'm still alive. He'll be so happy. That's the last thing he wanted to hear. So he killed the servant and used that as a way to claim his mother was trying to usurp the throne over him. Killed a servant, killed his mother, killed a husband, killed two wives, killed one half brother, and watched his father die. Now, you are public enemy number one, the Apostle Paul, sitting in prison in the city in which Nero lives. He is the emperor. Do you think you're going to get out of this alive? Not a chance. So Paul is very, very much concerned that if this is the last letter he ever gets to write, that he say things, and he chooses to write it to young Timothy, that he, say, he says things that, that will be important to Timothy, important for you and me to know. I mean, if it's the last letter he ever get to write, the stuff in it is going to be good stuff. Now that's what's so amazing to me about verse 15, 16, 17 and 18 of 2nd Timothy chapter 1. Let me read them to you. He says to young Timothy, "You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Asia by the way in the Bible always means Asia Minor." Uh, not uh, China, Japan, Korea, the Far East. It, it means Turkey, essentially. He says, "'Everybody in Asia Minor has turned away from me, "'among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. "'The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, "'for he often refreshed me "'and was not ashamed of my chains. "'But when he was in Rome,' He eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now, Timothy knew what service Onesiphorus had rendered to Paul at Ephesus. Unfortunately, we don't. It's not recorded anywhere in Scripture. I want you to focus with me today on this one man, Onesiphorus. He's only mentioned twice in the Bible. Once right here. And once again, in the last chapter of this same letter, just mentioned in passing. So everything we know about Onesiphorus, you could write on the back of a postage stamp and still have room left over. We know almost nothing about this man. And yet, what he teaches us in these few short verses is significant for you and me in the 21st century. Now, your theme of stepping stones. One stepping stone leads to another stepping stone. You need every one of them to get across the stream. You need every stepping stone in life to get through life successfully. And one of the great stepping stones, and that's what I see in this passage, one of the great stepping stones in life is the stone of commitment. To make a commitment to something and stick to it. That's how you get across the stream of life. You know, the collapse of commitment is pretty evident in our society today. There is an appalling lack of of, um, quality in a lot of the work that's done in the Western world. Pastoral tenures are very, very short these days. A majority of Christians have totally abandoned trying to read God's Word. I mean, this is the only book God ever wrote. I think He'd be pleased to have us read it. And yet... Commitment to reading God's word? Not a very strong thing for most Christians today. And then there are all those statistics about marriage. You know, I I would have had difficulty believing the statistics about marriage had it not been for one thing. I was in New York City one time and I saw a sign in a jewelry store window that said, Wedding rings for rent. Now, it's this lack of commitment in our society I want to talk about today. If you notice in verse 16, it says, The Lord grant mercy to Thaos of for he often refreshed me. Now, let me be honest with you. I don't know what it means that he often refreshed Paul. It doesn't tell us. Maybe it just means he brought cold water to him. Maybe he dressed some of Paul's wounds. Uh, Maybe he just read the Scriptures to him. I don't know what it is that he did. What I know is he did it consistently. He often refreshed Paul. Whatever that means, he didn't do it once in a while. He did it on a regular basis. He often refreshed Paul. And when you talk about commitment, Webster defines commitment this way. It says, the pledge to bind oneself to a certain course of action. Well, that's not particularly helpful to me. So I define commitment this way. Listen to this. I think commitment is the quality of tenaciously pursuing to the very end with heart and soul what you've pledged to pursue. Commitment is tenaciously pursuing to the very end with heart and soul what you have pledged to pursue. And that relates to your family. That relates to your church. That relates to your spouse. Whatever you have pledged in your life to be committed to, commitment means you tenaciously pursue that with heart and soul to the very end. Now, I want you to see that in the life of this man, Onesiphorus. We don't know much about him, but one thing we know in verse 16 is commitment demands consistency. You have to be consistently committed. You can't be committed once in a while. You can't attend church Easter and Christmas and say you're committed to that church just doesn't work that way. You can't occasionally be faithful to your wife and say you're committed to your wife. It doesn't work that way. Commitment demands consistency. It was William James who said that habit is the flywheel of society. It's kind of what keeps us going day after day, year after year. That may be true, but commitment is much more than habit. Habit carries us through life. Commitment determines what it is we will do habitually. What it is we'll do with our lives day after day after day. Reading God's Word may become a habit, but it's commitment that gets you into that habit. Being faithful to your spouse may become a habit, but it's commitment that gets you into that habit. Coming to church may become a habit. That's all right, because it's commitment that gets you into that habit. But you have to back up and make sure you're committed to do what you say you're going to do. Let me give you an illustration of my own life from this. Before uh, going back to the Bible, 21 plus years ago now, I was a college president in a small college in upstate New York. And uh, we had a man on our staff at this college whose name was Daniel Kahn, C-O-N-N. Now, that's not a name you would recognize. No reason for you to know that name, except for the fact That Mr. Kahn was the um, uh, kind of the chief maintenance engineer. You know, if if the boiler broke down on the old furnaces years ago, Mr. Kahn fixed the boiler. If uh, the hedge needed trim, Mr. Kahn trimmed the hedge. I, I so appreciated this fellow. He could trim clippings from a hedge and put them in quick root or something and get them to take root and plant another hedge i got on a Walmart and buy a hedge, and it would die in two or three days. I was so amazed at this man's ability. Well, Mr. Kahn was getting on in years, and uh, he lived in campus housing. I went to him one day, and I said, Mr. Kahn, I know you're thinking of retiring, but you really have no place to go. So I said, I have a deal for you. We will, as a college, provide your house for you, and we'll provide all the utilities. You stay in your house as long as you live." And he did. In exchange, what I'd like you to do is, I'll give you the money, you beautify our campus. You buy flowers, you plant trees, hedges, whatever. You know how to do this better than anybody. You beautify the campus. The first year he planted 3,300 marigolds alone. You should have seen this campus. Well, I was traveling quite heavily in those days, and when I would come back through Skiffle Airport in Amsterdam, uh, occasionally, if you were there the right time of year, you could buy tulip bulbs in a 10-pound bag right in the airport. And this is before the days of TSA, so you could carry them right on the airplane. (laughs) Well, I stopped by one day coming through Skiffle and I bought two 10-pound bags of Holland tulip bulbs. Took them home. And I said to Mr. Khan, one of these bags is for my wife, Linda. I want you to plant them around our house uh, so she can enjoy the tulips. The other bag, Mr. Khan, you plant wherever you want to. Well, several weeks went by, and I came home from class one day, and there's Mr. Khan on his hands and knees at our house. We lived in the president's house on campus, and he was planting tulip bulbs. But I noticed that one bag was already empty, and he was planting out of the second bag. I said, Mr. Kahn, did you plant the first bag around my house? He said, Yes. I said, Are you planting the second bag around my house? He said, Yes. So, oh, I'm so very, very sorry. You misunderstood me. I said, plant one bag for Linda around my house and plant the second bag wherever you want to. And he said, I am. <laughs> Well, as time went on, one evening, actually in the middle of the night, I could hear water running in our house. You know, you awaken and you hear the water and you say, What's, what's that? What's running? And I did what any good husband would do. I awakened my wife and <laughs> and I said, Linda, do you hear that water? She said, I do now. Well, we got up, and we looked room by room by room, try to find out where the water was running. We couldn't find it anywhere. Finally, it was springtime. Finally, I opened the screen on our window of the bedroom, put my head out, and I looked down, and there was Mr. Kahn watering these tulip bulbs. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, Mr. Kahn, what's the matter? Can't you sleep? Yeah, I can sleep. Why are you planting tulip bulbs or watering tulip bulbs at three o'clock in the morning? This is what he said to me. He said on the label on the package it said these bulbs are best watered in the middle of the night. Now I feel pretty certain it meant from an automatic sprinkler system. <laughs> but it didn't matter to Mr. Calm. I thought he was crazy. I came to the conclusion. He was committed to this campus to the extent that 3 o'clock in the morning didn't matter to him. If that's when the best time to water the bulbs would be, that's when he'd water the bulbs. See, commitment consistently does what's best for other people. It's not what's consistently best for me. That's not commitment. That's selfishness. So if you want to be committed today, You have to be consistent in being committed to the best interests of other people. I had a book years ago, still have the book, in fact, written by Maxine Hancock. Now, Maxine Hancock is a Canadian. She, I believe, taught at Regent University, Regent College, for a number of years. If I remember correctly, I think Maxine has a Ph.D. in 17th century English Literature. Well, at any rate, she's an authoress, and she's written several books, the first of which was a book entitled Love, Honor, and Be Free. Now, unfortunately, the book is out of print today, but Maxine tells a story about sitting down on an airplane one day next to a young woman of the 1980s. She says this young woman was um, obviously the epitome of success, She was well-dressed, she was well-educated, she was a businesswoman, she was in charge of herself, and she was newly divorced, totally successful in the world. Well, when she found out that Maxine balanced a career in writing with family responsibilities, she said, how do you do that? This is what Maxine said, I want to read her response to you. The secret was a few non-negotiable commitments. First, I am committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the authority of His Word in my life. Second, I am committed to my husband and my family. My thing must in no way hinder their full development. Within those commitments, I have freedom in which to order my priorities, The young woman asked, you mean you put commitment to others ahead of commitment to yourself? And Maxine said, yes. You mean, Onesiphorus, you put commitment to Paul ahead of your own comfort, your own commitment to yourself? The answer is yes. Committed people consistently commit to other people. You mean you put commitment to this church ahead of your own comfort? Yes. Ahead of your own interest? Yes. That's what commitment is all about. And we talk a lot about commitment today, but we don't show much of it because I don't think we really appreciate what commitment is. Onesiphorus refreshed Paul Often. Notice also, it says in verse 16, he was not ashamed of the chains of the Apostle Paul. That is to say, he was not ashamed of the fact Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison so often, he probably couldn't get in many seminaries today. In such a record. (laughs) But, verse 17, when he was in Rome, he, Onesiphorus, eagerly searched for me. Now look at that word, eagerly. Onesiphorus zealously searched. Sought the Apostle Paul. He eagerly sought Paul. See, commitment always starts with the subject, never with the object. Think about that. Commitment always starts with the subject, not with the object. If this church is worthy of your commitment, it will be worthy whether you're committed to it or not. Commitment starts with the subject, not the object. If God's word is worthy of your commitment, it will be worthy of your commitment whether you ever read it or not. You don't determine the worthiness of what you're committed to. What you determine is will you be committed? So, Onesiphorus seeks out the Apostle Paul, and it says he does it very zealously or he does it very diligently. If the object is worthy of commitment, it will still be worthy of our commitment whether or not we are committed to it. Uh, In my opinion, take it for what it's worth. Some of you are old enough to understand this. In my opinion, Brooklyn was worthy of the Dodgers playing in Brooklyn. And yet they went to the sunny hills of Southern California because they were not committed to Brooklyn That kind of lack of commitment enabled the Colts to move out of Baltimore in the middle of the night and go to Indianapolis. See, commitment means I will give myself to something because of the worthiness of that something. And I will match that worthiness with the worthiness of my own commitment. So number one, he says, he does it frequently. He sought me out. Number two, he does it under his own initiative. It was Onesiphorus who took the initiative to seek out Paul, not the other way around. Paul did not send for Onesiphorus. Presumably Onesiphorus came from the city of Ephesus. Paul didn't write to the church at Ephesus and say, Hey, I I, I really need somebody to help me here. Could you send Onesiphorus? No, it was Onesiphorus's idea to go to Rome to find Paul. Commitment starts when you take the initiative to be committed to someone or something, and then thirdly, there's this whole business about him searching diligently, or or seeking him out very diligently. Commitment requires determination. Uh, you can't you can't be committed every now and then, and you can't be committed uh, halfway. Uh, the determination means the the grit and the guts to stick it out. Uh, find a goal chart a course, and stay to it until you're done. Make sure you follow it all the way to the conclusion. Uh, I, this lesson came crashing home to me some years ago. I suppose we all learn these lessons in different ways. I learned this lesson when I was a student. Uh, Linda and I were married. We had two children, and an opportunity came for me to go to study at the University of Strasbourg in France. We talked about it, and uh, we couldn't all afford to go, but we decided this is an opportunity I needed to take. So I made sure that she and the kids were okay, cared for, and I set off to the university in France by myself. Now, I lived in a dormitory that was two miles away from the uh, university classroom, but I had already prepaid all my expenses. You know, I had travel, I had food, all those things prepaid. When I got to France, however, it dawned on me I had no pocket money. If I wanted to buy the kids something, I had no money to buy them something with. Buy Linda something for letting me go, I had had no money at all. So I hit upon a plan. My first day there, I sold my bus tickets that allowed me to take the bus in in the morning and back out in the evening. That meant I had to walk two miles in every day and walk two miles home every day. That same day, I sold half of my student meal tickets to the student eatery. Now, that wasn't such a loss. (laughs) Except for the fact that I went from Friday noon until Monday morning with nothing to eat. And in the process of this, I said, look, if I'm going to make it, I've got to say X number of months until I leave here, There's my goal. I'm going to walk in every morning, walk back every night. I'm going to discipline myself to be committed to seeing this through so I have enough money to spend a little spending money. And and here's the hard part. You know, when you make a commitment like that, Satan is already right there. And the hard part was I had to walk by this wonderful little patisserie every day, this French bake shop. And all the stuff looks so good in that window. And I went by it twice a day. And I said to myself, I will not go into this bake shop until the last day I'm in Strasbourg. That day, if I can meet my commitment, that day I'll go in and I'll buy something. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The last day I was there, I couldn't wait. I walked in that little bake shop like I'd been there every day of the year. I bought this thing, looked a little like a bear claw. I bit into that, and it was the worst tasting thing I've ever had. (laughs) My anticipations were clearly not fulfilled. But you know what? It taught me you have to be diligent about what you're committed to, or your commitment falls apart. Listen to this. Isaiah said, the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. That's determination. Of Jesus, it was said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's determination. Paul was committed to go to Jerusalem, even though he was counseled not to go. But he replied, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's determination. When you're committed to something, you are so determined to do what you have committed yourself to do, you don't even recognize that you have passed a bakery shop every day. You don't even recognize that the cross stands between you and joy. You have focused on your commitment to the extent nothing will deter you from that commitment. I heard one time that Eugene Ormandy, who led the Philadelphia Orchestra, Eugene Ormandy one time, while he was leading the orchestra, was so uh, exuberant in the way he led, he actually dislocated a shoulder while he was leading And nobody knew because he just continued. You know, it hurts me to undo a tie, and he dislocated his shoulder. And I think about, am I that committed to doing what God has called me to do? Are you committed to something in this church or in this family that you will do regardless of what Satan throws in your way? Now, look, we've looked at this man, Onesiphorus, and we know almost nothing about him. We do know, of course, that he, was, um, he took a lot of initiative in seeking out the Apostle Paul. He was consistent in the way he ministered to the Apostle Paul. He was determined he was going to do this very, very diligently. But I want you to notice verse 17, the last three words. Let me read the verse to you. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. Now, don't lose this. The purpose of commitment is not to try. The purpose of commitment is to win. You remember the story of Dan Jansen, the Olympic uh, speed skater? Dan Jansen was the best in the world at the 500-meter event. I mean, it was his event. And nobody could beat Dan Jansen. Well, he went to the uh, Olympics, the Winter Olympics, in Calgary, as the favorite, did not win a gold medal. Four years later, he went to Albertville as the favorite and did not win a gold medal. Then in 1994, he went to Lillehammer, Norway, again, clearly the favorite in the 500-meter, and everybody said, this time he's going to do it. Well, if you're like I am, you watched that live on television and you can still remember the horror of him going around that that bend in the track, the ice, steadying himself by putting out his hand, which touched the ice, and as a result, he was disqualified from the event in which he was the favorite. He could have packed it in and gone home right then. Most of us would have. But Dan Jansen decided to stay. And four days later, he entered the 1,000-meter speed skating event. Now, that was not his event. He did not skate that event. And he was not a favorite there. He was just another skater. But four days after his greatest defeat, because he hung in there, Dan Jansen took home Olympic gold for the first time in his life in an event that was not his event. Now, think about that in the context of this last letter of the Apostle Paul. In this last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. There's a certain degree of finality and of no little pleasure in the voice of Paul when he says, I have accomplished what God put before me. I have kept my eye on the goal. I have done this diligently. And that's exactly what Onesiphorus could say of the way he ministered to the apostle Paul. Paul said to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 9 24, all run, but one receives the prize, so run to win. Look, someday, you and I are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I think that's the most important day in the future of the Christian. Not the day the Lord takes us home to be with Him, but the day we stand individually before Him at the judgment seat. And he reveals to us everything done in our lives, good and bad, and he rewards us for that which is rewardable, that which is good, and he withholds reward from that which we did not do so well or did not do at all. The most important day in your future, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, is the day you stand before him as your judge. you wouldn't be there if you weren't a believer. This is not for non-believers. This is for Christians. This has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with eternal reward. And one of the eternal rewards, he says to us, is the commendation of the Lord. He'll look at our lives. He'll look at what he accomplished through our lives. And he'll commend us as a result. Now, I want to be honest with you. I look at this man Onesiphorus and the fact that he hung in there until he found the Apostle Paul. He didn't go back to Ephesus and say, hey, guys, you've got to appreciate Rome is a very big city. I had no idea how big it was. And you can't believe how many prisons there are in Rome. I went to dozens of prisons, never found Paul, so I came home and I gave it my best shot. God is not interested in your best shot. God's not interested in you giving it the old college try. I don't want to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and have him say to me, Well tried, good and faithful servant. Another to do you. It's well done, good and faithful servant. See, commitment doesn't stop when trouble starts. Commitment sees it through to the very end. Sees it through in life, in family, in marriage, in church, in everything to which we have committed our lives. My prayer for you today is that there isn't a single person in this auditorium today that won't have something pop into his or her mind and say, that's what I need to redouble my commitment to. That's what God gives to me personally. That's what I need to be committed to my entire life. And if you know what that thing is, or that person is, and you walk away from here saying, Onesiphorus, good going, guy. I'm going to be like you. It will have been a very important morning personally for you. Would you let me pray with you as I close? And as I pray for you, would you let the Spirit of God bring to your mind commitments that you have made in the past? Commitments that you perhaps need to make for the future? Commitments that were there, but somehow just kind of faded into the background. What are the things in your life that you need to tenaciously pursue to the very end with heart and soul? Who are the people? What are the projects? What are the opportunities right in this body, this church, where you could plug in and show the Lord some commitment that He's looking for in your life? I can't tell you what they are, but He can. So as I pray for you, would you let him bring those things to your mind, and then would you commit those things to him for your future? Pray with me, please. Father Onesiphorus is not one of those big, giant characters in Scripture like Abraham or Moses, Peter, Paul, John, Elijah. He's just a little guy an insignificant person whose name occurs only twice in the Bible and of whom we know very, very little. And yet in the eternal Word of God his name is recorded by the Apostle Paul because of his commitment. He saw the importance of pursuing diligently to the very end with heart and soul what he had pledged he would pursue finding Paul and ministering to Paul. Now, life is made up, Lord, of tiny little commitments like that that become big things in our lives. And everybody here has something to which they can be committed, someone to which they need to be committed. Bring to their minds today, Father, those areas of life, those projects, those things they may do in ministry in this church, Bring to their minds areas that commitment is absolutely essential. And then give them the heart and soul, Father, to pursue to the very end what they're committed to pursue. Bless them, Father, and use them in a significant way. In Jesus' name, amen.